Okay, well, welcome back to Powering Conversation with SP Energy Networks. I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by Judy Murray, um, incredible tennis player in her own right, tennis coach and advocate of women in sport and someone who I am extremely excited to chat to. So first of all, Judy, how are you? Just fresh off the back of being at Wimbledon? <laughs> yeah, I'm fair. I've been back for a week or so and I've actually this morning been out on the golf course because I'm not the golf course, I'm down at the pitching part. Um, there's a big uh, single open at Glen Eagles this week so that you can't get access to the driving range or the golf yeah. courses. So it was the pitching part for me this morning, which is a new challenge. Um, I took up golf about five months ago now and um, I'm part of a, it's an initiative to encourage more women to try golf. Um, there's four of us starting from scratch and we've got six months to learn and then we'll play in a competition. And it's basically documenting our story as to how we found it, you know, what made us want to get into it. At, we're all at different stages of our life and we're all well-known people from completely different um, spheres. So, you know, I, I think for me that I, I've learned a lot um, from doing it that probably just cemented everything that I feel about women in sport. And that's the importance of finding something that you enjoy doing and or you think you'll enjoy doing and finding somebody or a group of friends to do it with the fun friends and fitness thing that kind of for me is the the three main ingredients for a successful um women's sporting environment um have actually come as I would have expected probably into um, my experience of learning a brand new sport at my ripe old age (laughs) (laughs) not at all and I couldn't agree more to be honest like I guess for me, like one of the biggest drivers I have as an athlete is my teammates. They are kind of the people that that drive me to be better and be the best I can be for them. And um, so, yeah, no, I completely agree around how important that kind of friendship and that enjoyment and having people there that make you want to go and do it um, is. So before we go into um, kind of the depths of your career and, and all of that, I always like to kind of start at the beginning. Um, so, you know, you've achieved a huge amount both as a tennis player, a tennis coach, and now as a kind of, I guess, advocate for improving opportunities and, and, and things like that for women in sport. But I want to start with why tennis? Why was it tennis and why has it always been tennis? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was, it was tennis because my mum and dad both played tennis and I was the oldest child in the family of three and uh, my mum and dad we both played for the men's and women's teams at Dumbling Tennis Club. And they, they actually both played for the North Scotland County. So they were good tennis players. And, um, of course, for them to continue playing tennis at the club, they kind of trekked the three of us down to the club. And um, we kind of hung around waiting for them to finish their matches or finish their social nights or whatever it was that they were doing. And, you know, in those days, you played on a full court with a wooden racket, which was very heavy and very long um, and regular tennis balls. So really, you had to be about 10 at the very least to be able to play tennis back then. You know, nowadays, you've got shortened rackets, mini courts, uh, sponge balls or pressureless balls. And, you know, it's very easy for kids to get started at sort of five or six. 
but back then you probably had to be about 10. So I think um, from many years of hanging around the tennis club, which was a wonderful place to hang around because there were cle- there were trees to climb and there was, you know, other kids playing football and cricket and, you know, kind of mini versions of it on the grassy area beside the clubhouse. There was board games in the clubhouse and so forth. And um, But eventually got to an age and stage where I was able to, uh, to join in and you know in those days there was no such things as tennis coaches and I was lucky that my parents could show me how to play and uh, spend a lot of time with me um, and you know I think one of you know I, I'm a big advocate in the importance of learning to play the game by playing the game mm-hmm. I think that nowadays what I see is kids being programmed into activity from a young age and that it all becomes about the coaching and more kids than ever before are getting coaching and um, less kids than ever before actually playing the game, they playing competitions and tournaments or school teams and club teams. And that worries me um, on behalf of, <laughs> on behalf of my sport, but that, that's how I got into it. And as I got better at it, I was allowed to what play is? with the best at the club. Really, they taught me how to play the game, all the, the older people at the, at the club. So I grew up in a very, community-focused, small village club, um, went on to play for the district. Um, you can't really play for Scotland at tennis. It's a GB yeah. sport. Um, they, they have sort of a friendly home internationals. Um, so I've, I've played in that. But I think that all through my high school years at school, I, I think I always thought I was going to be a gym teacher. I mean, the, the prospect of being a tennis player from Scotland never would have entered my mind. I might have dreamed about it but never thought it would be possible simply because <clears throat> Scotland didn't really do tennis in those days yeah. you know and there were no indoor no such thing as indoor courts there were no coaches so I played tennis in the summer and I played badminton in the winter and I played for Scotland at badminton Scotland um, juniors at badminton and and uh, yeah those were my those were my two sports and I think that a lot of my frustration at the lack of infrastructure in tennis when I was a good British level junior, despite having no coaching or you know mm-hmm. any kind of formal opportunities, um, I would say um, my frustrations from not having the chance when I was 17, when I left school to be able to join a training squad or, or take yes. it seriously probably led me eventually to when I started to coach and I started as a volunteer at our local club when the boys were tiny I wasn't a coach I was just somebody who who went along to help out a couple of hours a week but I think that as I sort of um, got more and more involved in coaching it was a real goal for me to create an infrastructure that would allow any of our promising young players to actually be able to develop in our country so I don't think I ever would have um, thought that it would be a career for me um, as a as a coach, um, because uh, you know when I when I was volunteering there were no still no indoor courts and still nobody even thinking that they might become a tennis player. But um, yeah, I think I've always loved my sport and I discovered through volunteering that I enjoyed sharing my sport. And then of course I took some qualifications and I took some more qualifications and. I think I, I saw that as the players that I was working with were getting better and better, I realised I didn't know enough that the game had changed so much from when I played, you know, the wooden racket step in, follow through over your shoulder, um, you know, that kind of thing. You know, they were using double-handed backhands and topspin serves and things that were just like, what on earth is that? 
Um, yeah. So yeah, I I knew that to invest in the in the kids I was working with, I needed to invest in myself. And so I, I I set about trying to learn as much as I could by attending workshops and conferences in other countries because there really wasn't anybody to learn from in Scotland. Um, and that was really that was really my journey, I suppose, into into coaching. And um, yeah, and I'm still and I'm still learning. I'm still always looking at well, as you will, you have yeah. to always look at the competition um, from other sports. You have to look at the competition within your own sport. Um, and the world's changed so much. I mean, look at all the technology that, that helps you to coach and analyze better. That was never around, you know, when I when I started out. I was always pen and paper, and, and in lots of ways, I still am. But I taught myself how to do video analysis um, way back in the early 2000s when nobody else was doing it because I saw other sports doing it. So um, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a journey, and it's uh, it's still going. Yeah, it certainly has. In terms of, I guess, that that transition from being a high-level player to then transitioning to coaching, what was it that kind of ultimately led you to fully step away from being a kind of high-level player and that being your focus to then coaching really being your key focus? Yeah, when I, when I left school, um, I had got... Um, I had got good enough grades in my hires, as they were called then, um, <laughs> to have a place at Edinburgh University. And my dad had said, if I got good enough grades, I could leave after fifth year and take a year to see how good I could become at tennis. But the reality of that was, you know, back then the world was such a different place back then. You know, you were completely disconnected. Flights were a rarity. Um, you know, there's no such thing as mobile phones or ATM machines or the internet. You, you really were completely disconnected. And because I was the only one in Scotland looking to do something like that, and because my mom had my two younger brothers to look after and my dad ran his own business, I really had to go off on my own to, to try to do that. So I was trying to coach myself, I guess, or learn learn through play, um, but also having to negotiate my way around Europe, entering tournaments, finding accommodation, finding transport and so forth. And um that's not an easy thing to do when you're 17. I mean, it's it's um, it's probably an easier thing to do now. Um, yeah, much easier thing to do now. But back then, it probably was very unsafe as well. And I think that when I was robbed on a bus in Barcelona, um, this is probably just about six months, four to five, four, between four and six months into me trying to play um, you know, I was on a crowded bus and I got off the bus and realised my bag had been opened and my wallet had gone and, and it was the money that I'd just picked up from the post restaurant, which is the post office in Barcelona. That's where you had to go to pick up money. Your parents wired your money and you had to go and go in, show your passport, sign for it, etc. You know, think how easy it is now to go to an ATM yeah. sheet or just to use your contactless card. <laughs> um and anyway, my money was gone, my tickets home were gone, my passport was gone, it all be in my wallet. And um, I had to sort that out for myself, you know, find a policeman, get myself to the embassy eventually. And my dad, when I reversed the charges home, as you did in those days from a phone box, beep, 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 beep. Um, <laughs> you know, just come home, you know, it's too yeah. dangerous, you need to get yourself back. And so I did, and actually, in lots of ways, he made the decision for me, but I'm I'm glad that he did because I was probably thinking this is just too tough. Uh -huh. So you know, again, I think that 
understanding that and it was something I really wanted to try to do but the odds were stacked against you coming from Mm -hmm. a country that really didn't have any opportunity for any training or or accompanied trips to tournaments and so forth so I didn't last very long um but I, I do think a lot of that has has fueled what I managed to create eventually when I became the national coach in 1995 yeah, definitely. I think like I think what you did is incredibly brave in in that sense because you know me as an athlete, I've done it with teammates behind me and and all the support in the world, and I can't imagine like having to do that so independently and in a world where things are a lot more difficult. So I think that is super interesting in terms of your journey. But I think like you say, like the amount of fuel that's probably now given you to create those opportunities is is why you've done so much within sport. So. You touched on it there around your kind of journey to be the, the Scottish national team coach. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you got to that point? Because I know there was a few barriers there in terms of being, I think it was the first woman to to take on the qualifications that were needed and stuff like that. So how kind of did that come about and, and how tough was that process? I applied for a place on the LTA's Performance Coach Award, which was a 12-month uh, course uh, broken up into um, a series of workshops um, at which were all down south of course um, but I was advised to wait uh, until that course came on stream. Uh, they'd been creating it for some time and it was going to be their, their sort of all singing all dancing top award and I was really um, really desperate to learn more. I wanted to know how to run a day-to-day program and um, I wanted to know how how you plan to develop players, boys, girls, differences between the two, uh, what's important at different ages. So I really wanted to learn from people who've been there and done it. So I applied for a place on this uh, course and I was given one. There were only 20 spaces. Um, I was maybe a little bit surprised that I got one given that I was uh, pretty much part-time uh, coach at a, a small club in Scotland um, and much of what I was doing was voluntary um, I didn't think to ask who else was on the the, the course I was just thrilled that, that I got on it and of course the the reality of <clears throat> all of the workshops being down south is that it takes a lot more time to get there and it'll cost a lot more money as everything does when you're part of a GB sport and things are not um, delivered in your own country so um, yeah, I went I went down to the first workshop and I was kind of full of sort of trepidation that oh you know the kids were sort of six and seven it was a big big step for me it was a big outlay of finance and a big time commitment um, and of course I got down there and discovered there was eighteen men and there was only two women on it and 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 really on that first day <clears throat> I had my kind of first sort of encounter with what was absolutely blatant sexism from one of the tutors who said to me, oh, you know, welcome to the course. Um, I hope you hope you enjoy it. And I said, yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, and he said, yeah, he said, you were lucky to get a place on the course, you know. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, um, we had to turn a lot of guys away. So I just kept saying, really? I said, really, yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he said, in fact, we had we had a complaint from one of, from, <clears throat> from one of the guys that we turned away um, he, because he said what could you possibly offer to performance coaching when you have two kids and I just looked at him and I, I went well 
you just have to see. Um, and I, I went off and I went off and sat in the loose. And I, you know, I sort of shut the door and I, I just thought, oh, I was already feeling like, you know, complete minority, uh, just, the, just the two women there. I was the only person who wasn't a full-time tennis coach based at a big posh club yeah. somewhere. We didn't have big posh clubs in Scotland. Didn't even have indoor courts at that point. Um, and I just thought, oh. and then I really, you know, and then I just thought, no, you know, you're here and you're not going to let somebody put you off um, through words like that. But it really, it did, it did shake me um, in the sense that it was so anti-female. And the fact that the guy was a tutor and he chose mm-hmm. to share that with me. And, you know, one of the biggest, biggest things for me in coaching is how you make your pupils or your audience or your team or teammates feel. Yeah. You know, make them feel good. Yeah, and valued. And get an improvement in performance. If you make them feel bad about themselves, no chance you're going to get yeah. the best out of them. I mean, it's just an absolute obvious thing. So anyway... So I I uh, I kind of just knuckled down and, and and got on with it. And I would have to say that the, the course didn't give me what I was looking for. It gave me a lot of information. It was very it was too lecture based. That you know I wanted the on the job training. I wanted to see people coaching. You know with great communication skills. How they how they programmed and planned everything. I just didn't see that. It just felt like more university type lectures and workshops. And there's lots of projects and things. And I passed the course, and I think I passed it because I was clever. I could do the projects. I could write the projects yeah. easily. But it, I'm not sure that it made me a better coach. It gave me a lot of information, but it didn't give me any kind of what I would call formation or transformation. And so really I had to take what I'd learned and go back to Scotland on my own and try and use the information that I'd learned in a, how to apply it practically. And I continued to, you know, go to conferences and workshops in other countries to try and learn, you know, from other coaches. But as a result of passing that and being the first woman to pass that award, that coaching award, I got the opportunity from the LCA to travel with some of the under 12 and under 14 girls teams, the GB teams. And that was a huge learning opportunity for me to travel to other countries, to feed mm-hmm. off all the other coaches who were there who had been traveling and developing players for a long time so I made the absolute max out of that and that helped me enormously when I went on to become the national coach because not long after I passed that award the national coach job came up for grabs and it had been vacant for about 18 months and to be honest I'm not sure anybody wanted it I mean if you think about the lack of infrastructure and no indoor courts although it was a national coach job how do you you know, no track you can start, yeah. No world class coaches. So nobody from another country is going to come in and take that job when they see that there's nothing to work with. However, I, I understood completely our landscape and how, how poor it was. And um I was persuaded to go for it by the woman who was you would call it chief exec now, but in those days she's secretary of the Scottish Lawn Tennis Association. And she said to me, look, you've got the passion for it. You know Scotland, you know kids, and you just passed that award. You should do it. And it was a massive step for me. And um, anyway, I, I, I got the job. And um, yeah, I did it for about <clears throat> 10 years and created um, 
uh, created, a, I think, a good infrastructure for some of our best kids to, to train. And I had, I mean, I did £25,000 salary and a £90,000 budget for the, for the whole country. £90,000 and no indoor courts. Some indoor courts, four courts at Stirling University did come on not long after I'd started, uh, which was great. But with a limited budget and no staff, just literally me and a hopper full of balls and a small block booking in these indoor courts, I started with 20 kids that I picked age between sort of seven and 11. And uh, Andy would have been the youngest and Elena Valtasha would have been the oldest. And, you know, of those 20 kids, we had four went on to play Davis Cup and one went on to play Fed Cup, which obviously is Valtasha who made eventually uh, 50 in the world. She's British number one for many years. And um, Colin Fleming, Jay Baker, Jean and Andy all played Davis Cup and the boys obviously won their slams and they uh, Olympic goals for Andy. And, and uh, yeah, but I also had to, I got to a stage when these little kids were getting really good to, I had to keep learning, what, what do I do next? What's the next thing? And hence all the traveling that I was doing with the, the GB teams really helped me to learn what to do next. But then I realized, you know, they can't do it all on my own. I need to bring, I need to develop a workforce here. So I started um, a performance coach development program that was funded for six years in a row by Sports Scotland. They gave us £10,000 for six years in a row. And I identified a number of young coaches um, and gave them a, a really good mentoring program. So they still worked in their own backyards, but they came into the indoor centre I sent them to training camps overseas. I sent them to overseas competitions and so forth, so they could learn on the job. And so that makes just a big, big believer of on the job training. And you know, there's only so much you can learn by reading books and listening to podcasts, and and so much you actually need to, you know, to to get out and do it and experience the world in which you want to work. So, um, yeah, I, that that was really that was really how it how it's how it went you know I, investing in people is a, a big a big thing for me I mean that's your legacy is your people and you know if I look at Leon Smith now who started with me when he was 20 who's been the Davis Cup captain for many years now very successful in that role head of men's tennis at the LTA so you know and, and many of the others who came through are still you know they're, they're still the the kind of main players within Scottish tennis, although some of them obviously work overseas and, and down south now. But yeah, it's um it was a you know it was a long road, but I think so much of it was just based on common sense and and passion and having an ambition for your sport within your country. Did you see a shift, I guess, in that kind of sexism within the sport um, and those challenges that you were faced with in your early career during that time that that you were obviously at the forefront, you were kind of now a role model for for other female athletes and uh, sorry female coaches um, and you were trying to get you know young coaches involved and and give as many people exposure to coaching and coach education as possible did you see a shift immediately so in that kind of 10-year period that you were the national coach or did it take you stepping away and then kind of I guess working on that specifically after you left that role and um, to see a shift in that that attitude I think that when <clears throat> when I was working in Scotland, because because I was in lots of in lots of ways starting from scratch, and because there was such a tiny tennis coaching workforce in Scotland at that time, and if you think about it, if you can only play your sport for six months of the year, how many coaches are really going to take it seriously? You know, you switch to another mm-hmm. sport for the winter because 
because you've got no indoor courts. So, you know, we, we, I think that because everything that I was trying to put in place, I was never stepping on anybody's toes because nothing was there. And I don't think that I encountered sexism as such. I think one of the things I definitely encountered was like lack of belief, you know, people who would share the ambition, you know, and even within Tennis Scotland's um, very amateur board, you know, whenever I spoke about players world-class for their age, it was like they were looking at me like a, like like I had horns, like, what are you talking about, you know? And we, we did, um, not that long after I started, we had, you know, the, some of the best under-12s and under-14s in Britain, and that was really when people started to sit up and take notice because we went down to the British Championships and we were just mopping up. I, you know, I realized very quickly how much harder you have to work to make things happen on the women's side than you do on the men's side. You know, I see the side of the team, uh, you know, on the benches at the Davis Cup, and I was fighting to get, you know, a backroom staff of four to come with me for my first Fed Cup campaign. You know, and I said, look, the last Davis Cup match, I went to, to watch the boys and there was 19 people on the bench, including the team. I went, I'm asking for four to try and build the team up to give us a chance to, you know, compete on the same terms as the as the guys because you know Fed Cup was such a tiny thing we were in you know the kind of nether regions of Euro Africa zone and um, look where we are now you know we started to build a team we started to build a backroom team and uh, but when I went to my first Fed Cup campaign there were 16 teams in our group and we were all in one place in Israel and it was a bit like playing a club match it, it was like we had one man and his dog watching us we had to create our own media our own you know, social media was a, a small thing back then, but obviously we, we started doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff to try and grow profile for, for the girls. But, um, you know, of those 16 teams, there was only two female captains of women's teams. And it was like, this is, you know, this is not curious to my, to, to my country. This is like, yeah. everywhere, all the tennis coaches, nearly all the tennis coaches are men, and particularly working at the top end of the game. And, and now, you know, in 2022, you go on the women's tour, you will hardly see a female coach. So uh, it's, I've been a big promoter of creating opportunities and career pathways for female coaches because there's a qualification pathway like I got, but is mm-hmm. it a career pathway? No, there is not. And, you know, it's the jobs for the boys thing, you know, that it always seems to be the guys that get the, the big jobs and the big you know the big labels and maybe that's because of the numbers but you know I've, I've said for a long long time that every sport should have a female focused development strand to its strategy that is led by women for women because we see the world with female eyes and we hear it with female ears um, and men don't and that is just normal of course it's normal for men to see the world with from a male perspective they are men but it doesn't help us um, yeah. if they are always in the in the main decision making positions. So yeah, I I I think um, it was twenty twelve when uh, somebody said to me, you know, you have a you have a profile, you have a voice as a female coach, um, and uh, you should use your voice because you know if you don't make a noise, nobody hears you. And not sure I've kind of shut up since, although I am at the stage now where. I, I do think it's time for the younger generation to 
um, really to step up. I, I really do. Um, I think uh, I'm a granny of five now, and I think uh, I think I've done with time. <laughs> On like, I guess that using your voice as well. How important do you think, in terms of growing female games and and getting support for for female sport? How important do you think male allies are in that? You know, obviously. Andy is Andy and Jamie for that matter are two incredible male allies for in the world of tennis for for women's for women's players. But they are so few in what could be so many, in my opinion. And and we have that issue in rugby where we we really don't have that many male allies. And I don't know whether it's that they don't recognise how big an impact they could have, which I which is my opinion. But I wonder what what opinion do you have in terms of how big an impact male allies can have in terms of growing the female game. Yeah, it, it's um, it's incredibly important to have um, male allies and male advocacy. Um, you know, I, I know that huge strides have been made on the women's side of, of sports over the years, and I think some of the, you know, the performances that we now see across a range of individual and team sports make us realise that if we invest in the performance, the performance becomes watchable. Uh, then that brings in the whole visibility thing and brands and sponsorship and so forth. But it's got to be good enough to be watchable. And I think for many years, certainly through my sporting lifetime, there was um, there was never enough uh, investment in the, the performance or the pathway for female athletes and I think that tennis was always in a better position than the other sports because of the work that Billie Jean King and her original nine gang did you know over 50 years ago you know they believed in themselves they believed that they played well enough to attract an audience on their own merit and they broke away from the men from the tour because the men were getting 90% of the gate and they were only getting 10% and they did an incredibly brave thing back then to, to do that and literally start with nothing but that's why tennis is in such a strong position now in terms of um, TV coverage, brand endorsements. You know, the wealthiest athletes in the world are nearly all tennis players and have been for some time. And every other sport, in my opinion, is still catching up. But, you know, like look at the, look at the Euros on, on, on TV at the moment with the, the, the Lionesses. And the performances are incredible because yeah. the investment has been consistent for a long time now. And now you're seeing just what female athletes can do and fans are coming out to support it and get excited about it. And this can only be great for women and girls sports, yeah. you know, because the whole, if you can see it, you can be it. But people are getting really excited about it because the skill level is massive. So, yeah, the, the allyship, you know, it absolutely, um, because the, 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 the top people in most sports are men, it is incredibly important that, we, that they understand the importance of encouraging women. I mean, sports are a microcosm of society. Of course, we should all have an opportunity to do what we want to do in sport. And yes, we're still a long way behind, but we have made incredible progress. And that's why I'm always saying we, we mustn't be we mustn't be complacent about yeah we've made progress isn't that great and then sit back we have to keep pushing for more but male advocacy male allyship is amazingly important and whenever we find a male ally who 
is on our wavelength, is on our side. That's such a wonderful, safe space to be, to know that there's someone you can go to who's encouraging, who listens, who will act on what you're talking about, rather than, I suppose, often what we encounter is the token, the tokenism, yeah. the listening, and here's a little bit, and off you go. A little bit isn't enough. It has to be, you know, a long-term commitment to the performance and I've been saying that for a long long time that we have to invest in the performances to make sport watchable and once it's watchable then it creates all sorts of opportunities for other not just playing of sport but working within sport fans viewing sport bums on seats and so forth so um yeah but the the, the bulk of the big decisions are, are made by men so I, I guess what we need is career pathways for women to climb not just on the playing side but in officiating their career administration um, and so forth as well so that our, our our voices are always represented yeah definitely well thank you very much for such an incredible insight into kind of I guess your thoughts your career and and, and all that a couple of questions I want to round up with just um to kind of I guess conclude on some of the stuff we've talked about but one thing I'm super interested in in terms of you've had such a diverse career um in terms of playing coaching and everything you've done around that for you what has been the key or a few key um highlights or some of the moments or things that you've achieved which have given you that greatest satisfaction um I think that whenever somebody asks me about that, you know, about career highlights, the first thing that always pops into my head was Dumbling High School Boys team winning the Scottish Schools Championships in 1994. Because, I, you know, I was just a volunteer at the club and there was these four lads who, um, you know, who were, who were part of the team. Well, there was actually six of them, but four of them ended. It was just a team of four, but I had, I had six. Um, and one of the six was Callum Davidson, who you might know as the he's a, a was a Scotland footballer and uh, manager at St Johnston. And uh, he was always on the edge of the team because he was good at every other sport. So he often didn't make the the last sport. He would be off playing golf or squash or something for football. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was just these four lads from the club who I started when I when I started doing my volunteering. You know, and they would all at that stage of being like. 10 or 11, I suppose, and, and here they were, you know, sort of 16 or so, um, and, they, and they won the Scottish Schools Championships, and I, I remember I did all the organising of the matches, um, I did all the coaching of them, of course, took them to the matches, and then they got to the finals, and it's four teams in the final, it was in Edinburgh, and that's when the PE teacher at the school phoned me up and said, um, I'll take them through to the finals. Um, don't worry, you don't you don't need to you don't need to come. Thanks very much, whatever, whatever. And I thought, are you kidding me? <laughs> he hadn't shown any interest in it at all. Couldn't even play tennis. No interest. All the matches, of course, had been played at the clubs and of course at school. And uh, so, of course, I went through to watch, and I kind of just watched from a little bit of a distance, something. But it, it had a huge impact on me. Um, the fact that they won that because it was my first success I suppose and, and it was local it was the local school there were kids I'd started off by being a volunteer and it was a big thing for them and they were like the hoop but there was another instance of sexism it's like I'll take over now you know you you know and it was 
yeah. I, anyway, but I, I always go back to that. I, I think that, that made me very emotional when you know when that happened, and I think. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many things with uh, with kids over the years, but I think when I was the national coach, there were just too many moments of watching our Scottish kids winning British titles. Never would have imagined that in my day, you know, to take busloads or mini busloads and come down to nationals at Bournemouth or Nottingham and, and come back with silverware. And we'd always have a flag in the back of the bus. And, we'd, you know, when we left, we all say we're off to conquer England and then we'd come back with some trophies and things like that. But those, those are huge, huge moments for me yeah. as a coach, you know, seeing the, the joy on the kids' faces. And then, you know, further down the line, obviously being a Fed Cup captain was a massive thing for me, somebody recognizing that I was a good coach and good good manager I suppose um as well and then I think watching the boys win the Davis Cup for Great Britain um you know because in the final they, they won three one and it was two singles of Andy's and Andy and Jamie in the doubles and that was that was massive um along with all the Davis Cup matches that were in Glasgow because the team was largely Scottish and the captain was Scottish that was a massive thing for me as well and I think when they beat Australia in the semi-final um, in 2015 to make the final um, you know I think I remember sitting there when they played doubles on the Saturday and Jamie and Andy came out to play and Leon led them on and there's 9,000 people in the din in that place and the Red Hot Chili Pipers that the atmosphere was just through the roof and I remember sitting there and thinking about the guy that said we're not interested in Grand Slam champions yeah. we're not interested in Grand Slam champions and I'm thinking you know, there you go, all of you who didn't believe that we could produce world-class players. I hope some of you are in this audience and seeing this in the east end of Glasgow, where you won't find a tennis court for love no money, and 9,000 sell-out crowd, largely Scottish team representing Great Britain, and they're going through to the final of what is the World Cup of, of tennis. Who would have believed that? Well, probably just me. <laughs> but that was a massive moment for me. Yeah. It kind of pulled everything together. You know, players, coaches, ambition, um, and it was in Scotland. Massive. Yeah. No, that is that is incredible. I was going to ask you earlier if you've come across any of those guys that said they didn't care about junior. It's spot on in terms of, you know, how sometimes it does take that amount of time for you to see what, what needs, but it's all about the investment over a prolonged period of time to, to allow that to happen. Um, and it is incredible what you have achieved so far, and I'm sure what you will still achieve. Um, so one final question, which is something that I like to ask everyone we get on is, and I think this is probably a wee bit redundant with you because I think you've probably always been very competitive and very determined in, in terms of everything you've done. But with all your experiences you have now within sport, is there any advice you would give a young Judy Murray <laughs> if you could now in terms of kind of what you've learned and 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 how you would maybe act differently or, or do something differently from a younger age? Um, I think if I was, I think if, if I was talking to myself as a young player, I think I kind of know what I would, I wish I had been more, uh, I wish I'd been more confident, more, maybe a little bit more aggressive in the way that I played. I wish I'd taken more risks. But I do think, you know, we're all products of our environment. And my environment at that time was, you know, lack of infrastructure, no real ambition, no nobody really playing with any kind of big purpose or big picture. 
Um, but I think that I think that from a you know whether you're a player or whether you're a coach, actually finding somebody that you can learn from, that you enjoy being with, who's been there and done it, that can put an arm around you when you need an arm around you, who can give you a you know a slap on the wrist when you need a slap on the wrist, and you know tell you the hard tell you the hard truths. I think um, you know we all learn best by copying and. I think I was always very aware when I went into coaching that there was nobody for me to learn from. And even when I went into, I suppose, the parenting side, there were no other parents who had done it in Scotland that I could pick their brains. Not, not everybody's path is slightly different, but, and I think that's why I spend so much time sharing my experiences um, with other coaches and, and parents in particular and teachers. Um, because it's not to say that, of course, one size doesn't fit all, but I think if we shared more actually across sports as well, rather than keeping everything to ourselves, we we would create a much bigger, better, stronger, more informed workforce um, of, of, of people across across sports. So, yeah, I think, I think it's all about people. I think it's about finding the people that can open the doors for you, the people that you can learn from, the people who will encourage you and, um, and 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 support you you know when you are when you're trying to learn it doesn't matter what stage of the journey you're on we all need somebody to help to mentor us to support us definitely I couldn't agree more well thank you so much for for joining me today and chatting to me a little bit about everything really <laughs> and, and career and uh, I wish you all the luck in the world with with all you have coming up and and keep pushing for 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 more